Oxytocin is the opposite. It's the most alkalinizing hormone. So in fact, you can be eating, have a night out eating pretty crappy, but you've been partying with your friends, laughing, you know, had great sex and you wake up and your urine pH is completely alkaline. That's the power of oxytocin. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, buddies. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Stephanie Estima. Today, we are talking all about menopause and how we can heal through food. My guest today is Dr. Anna Kabeka. She is a triple board certified fellow of gynecology and obstetrics, integrative medicine, and anti-aging and regenerative medicine. She has special certifications in functional medicine, sexual health, and bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. For the past 20 years, she has been in practice serving 10,000 plus women uh, and millions more through her various books, online videos and articles. And we are talking about her new book, Menu Pause, five unique eating plans to break through your weight loss plateau and improve your mood, sleep, and hot flashes. So as you might expect, we talk a lot about some of the uh, preliminary signs and symptoms that a woman might experience in perimenopause. And we start with the cognitive and brain-based benefits. No surprise that that was my first question there. And some of the uh, impacts that uh, estrogen and testosterone have on our cognitive function, sleep, mood, apathy, uh, our uh, desire to connect. We move on to talk about oxytocin, the queen hormone, as uh, Dr. Anna likes to refer to it at, and we talk about some other hormonal imbalances that we often see in perimenopause. Now, of course, we talk about the sex hormones, as you might expect, but we also talk about cortisol and insulin as being some of the primary drivers of hormonal dysregulation. So what we're really talking about here is metabolic dysfunction that leads to, and chronic low-grade stress and inflammation that lead to some of these sex hormone um, discrepancies. So we talk about how we can understand uh, menopause. We talk about um, urine pH and how we might be aiming for more of an alkaline uh, uh, urine pH level. We talk about some of the different um, types of eating plans that one might explore in uh, their quest to heal. So we talk about something very similar to the Estima diet, what Dr. Anna calls the keto green uh, extreme, which is basically a ketogenic diet with lots of green leafy vegetables. Uh, She talks about a plant only, so basically a vegetarian or a vegan plan, uh, a carnivore plan, a carb up plan, and how to cycle through all of those. And then she also, uh, pardon me, she also talks about a cleanse plan there as well, and how to cycle through all of those five plans uh, to help kickstart your metabolism, 
break through weight loss uh, plateaus and just feel great because menopause really should be the second coming, if you will, where we are much more comfortable in our skin. Of course, we have a lot more experience under our belt, and this is a time for us to really return to ourselves. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with Anna. We are very aligned in so many ways. So please, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Anna Kebeka. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Anna Kabeka, I am just tickled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome to the show. I am glad to be here with you, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is long overdue. Uh, there is so much uh, synergistic um, and aligned work that both you and I do. And um, I think that we're going to have a really great conversation today around hormones for women, particularly for women who are transitioning from perimenopause um, into menopause. And we're going to talk about all the hormones and the plans and your new book, Menupause. Um, before we get into that juiciness, um, I thought, and I was saying this to you in the pre-chat, um, just setting the stage for the individual, the human, the woman um, that you are, um, I would love to talk about your origin story because I think that um, at least when I learned about it, I was like, I had no idea how how devastating, um, you know, a diagnosis, uh, that I'll let you share, um, might be, and then how triumphant it must've felt to be able to kind of overcome that with what you did. So talk a little bit about your history with hormones, uh, your own personal history and how you came into this work. Yeah, I, um, you know, I would say your mess becomes your message, right? <laughs> so I definitely fell into the pits of pits of hell, pits of despair at one time, and my hormones were absolutely a mess. And um, early menopause at age 39, but I came into this, Stephanie, you know, I'm a first generation American. Um, my mom is from the Middle East. And at when I was young, at a six. 16, around 16, mom was undergoing her first heart surgery at 52. And I realized at that age that the work they were doing for, on my mom had only been done on men. The research for women's care was basically, and still is today, predominantly done on men. So that drove me into women's health and drove me into um, really trying to get to the root cause of what's going on. Uh, and I trained at Emory University in Atlanta in OBGYN. I loved my training. And then I was National Health Service Corps. So I came to a small island in, in uh, 
small area in Southeast Georgia, McIntosh County, which is a shrimping village. And then I lived on St. Simon's Island and for the last 22 years, but I was in solo practice, Marcus Wilby-ish, right? As an OBGYN on call 24 seven. And for many of my clients, I mean, the first specialist they've ever seen and bilingual and, um, and had to come up with very creative, conservative ways to help my patients. And that led me to really understand, to get dive deep into functional medicine and hormone management, especially when it comes to sexual health and, um, and what we need to do to actually avoid medication and surgery because it wasn't able to be afforded for most of, most of many of my clients too, and I had quite the range. And so, um, but at age 39, post-traumatically, um, I went into early menopause and ovarian failure and I failed, my husband and I were trying to get pregnant at that time and failed round after round of the highest dose of injectable meds and my repro endo, my endo infertility doctor, specialist, reproendocrinologist, um, he said that your only option is a, you know, egg donation. And for me at that time, that was not an option. And that took me on this journey around the world to actually, you know, serendipitously meet some of the most amazing healers from traditional medicine, from an Andean philosopher to an Indonesian healer to some of the world's leading scientists. And as a result of that, reversing early menopause and um, becoming pregnant spontaneously at age 41, having my daughter, Ava Marie, who is now 14 and I'm 55 and maintaining hormone balance <laughs> is even more important now than it was then. So that's been part of my, that's been part of my story. And what was the, were you, were you able to understand what that um, ovarian failure was due to? Was there ever an explanation or did you kind of deduce on your own? Like what was the, what was the reasoning behind that? Do you think? Definitely post-traumatic stress, definitely stress. And to that degree, and that's not something we studied in med school, right? That's not something we studied even in residency as, as obstetricians and gynecologists, the prolonged effect or the acute and severe effect of stress on your body. So that combined with, you know, the infertility treatment, stress after stress, you know, and for me, our, my, our tragedy is that we lost our son in a, in a very tragic accident and that, you know, was a tremendous grief and trauma. And, um, and under the surface, I had ongoing stress, grief, and then for years, PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so that acute and chronic stress for sure had to be the underlying physiology. And if we think progesterone or mother hormone, because I've been trying to dig this out, right? Progesterone or mother hormone depletes is depleted by in stress situations because it's going to make our life-saving hormone cortisol and downstream we have dhea estrogen and testosterone that there's this reproductive hormones are the last to get fed essentially last to get created and in, when you're stressed because you're driving towards cortisol so that i really i think is a contributing is a huge was was a huge cause of it and at 39 to fail round after round of ivf meds and now there's the question in the back of my mind did the round after round after round of ivf you know of um fertility meds i was doing ovarian high dose ovarian stimulation did those meds also affect 
you know, have a consequential effect on the early menopause. So it's, it's very curious, definitely the stress, definitely the stress. And I think we're going to have a, a robust conversation around cortisol and stress. And obviously, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I know that it can be difficult um, even to talk about uh, publicly in someone such as yourself who sort of lives in the, in the public eye. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that there's a tendency for women to say, oh, you know, I'm in perimenopause now. And, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the maybe classic presentations like an estrogen dominant type, even though that name is a little, you know, I know it, it's a, you know, we'll say like it's a uh, misnomer. It, it's, it's a, a misnomer. Mis- correct. Yeah. So, you know, but, but, but people will refer to it as estrogen dominant. So we'll just sort of use the, the language that our, that our audience might understand. Um, they want to focus, let's say on the estrogen right away or the testosterone right away or the uh, progesterone as you were, as you were mentioning, but upstream, as you just so eloquently mm-hmm. described, we have issues with cortisol management. Um, I want to talk about glucose and insulin management. And then I know that you do a lot of work around oxytocin. So I'm hoping that we'll get to touch on that um, today as well. So let's just kind of put a little star there and a little asterisk. We're going to come back to cortisol in just a moment. The other piece of your, uh, that I want to make sure that we ask, because I'm super interested in this as well, is you just entered into one of the more exclusive clubs that I hope to join one day, which is you just became a grandmother. I did. I did. And she's amazing. I actually delivered her like from the hundreds and hundreds of babies I've delivered in my life. This was the most amazing birth. I'm telling you. Oh my gosh, Stephanie. Ah, so gorgeous. So incredible. So, um, yeah. I can't like, I remember when my, when my uh, boys were being born, like I, like, you know, the head was delivered, you know, one of the shoulders was delivered and I just like reached down and I was like, all right, we're done. Like I'm, I'm pulling my babies out. And so I I pulled them up and started like, you know, they started like bobbing, sort of looking for the nipple as they do. But, um, I I think that that's so special that you delivered, um, your grandbaby. So let, can we just, uh, you know, in the name of your book menu pause, can we, (laughs) can we pause a moment and can you maybe describe what it's like to see, you know, your lineage essentially like to see, uh, your grandbaby and to, to assist in that birth. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Oh my gosh, really? It was amazing. And there's so much as an obstetrician, right? I've delivered many babies, but this was the first one in a birthing center where my daughter, Amanda, chose to have nothing, Stephanie, nothing, no Tylenol, no Advil, no pain medicine. And uh, God bless her. And so seeing her like there's that my daughter, she's struggling through these contractions and just you know, um, braving it and then naturally pushing. And then all of a sudden, here's this gorgeous baby. And we did this practice called pause where we just laid the baby next to Amanda so she could catch her breath, position herself, and then bring the baby onto her chest. And it was the most incredible. And this baby was so alert. I mean, her name is Andalisa Rose almost like Andalusia, right? Yeah, Andalisa Rose. Mm-hmm. And um, Andalisa was just so awake and alert. She had no drugs. It was crazy. It was just, I, you know, I'm amazed to see that entire process. And then just really delayed cord cutting and hanging out. And uh, honestly, the, and the spiritual sense, like there were angels in the room. I mean, there were angels in the room. I always prayed when I did deliveries and I always prayed for the mom, for the baby and for, the spirit. And I just felt like I felt 
legacy in that room. I felt like we were really protected because my mom, my parents are passed away. I never knew my grandparents. And so created this, now we have three generations. I mean, I, I know families with many generations, but this one went from two to three. And it's like, feels like such an incredible blessing to have this. And then also the onus on me as the, the head of the family, the head of the house, the head of the um, maternal lineage and how I see all my daughters and now granddaughter, how will the world be for them? And how can I make it even more beautiful? So I it was just thing. incredible. I'm still I, gl- obviously I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to make sure that we touched on that because I remember my great grandmother, um, you know, I was, I was maybe four or five when um, she passed away and, you know, but to think about not only like now you have grandchildren, but t- can you just imagine, I mean, I am so excited. Like I always say, I am competing right now. Like I lift weights and I eat, I want to be like the favorite grandmother. Like I can't <laughs> wait for that. But I even think of a step further, like, can you imagine having, like knowing your grandchildren's children, you know, like to be yeah. a great grandmother. I think that, um, so congratulations to you. Have you settled on a name? Cause I know that you have, you're the only person I've ever met other than Shakira, who I haven't met. I just know of who have has, has like a similar sort of ethnic blend, if you will. Uh, like I'm Middle Eastern, like Lebanese and Portuguese is my background. And I know that you are very similar. Yeah. In Palestinian that. Portuguese, Palestinian, beautiful and Portuguese. So have you, have you settled on uh, are you Avozinha? Are you Teta? What, what are you? I, I have no idea. I, I say, you know, whenever I talk to Andalisa, I'm like, oh, here's your Tita, Gigi, Nina, you know, <laughs> I can't go through this list of names. Ah, but what, you know, yeah. so it's really been fun. But one thing that's really interesting, Stephanie, I think it's like the concepts of what we have of those we know when we have a new title, a new hat to wear on our head. Mm-hmm. And I didn't recognize this for many months, but when I knew that I was like, when I found out, I'm becoming a grandmother. Well, there was, you know, all kinds of energy around that. But then there was also what in my mind does a grandmother look like? My mom was sick and on oxygen. I never knew my grandparents. And all of a sudden I'm gaining weight. You know, I'm like canceling my workouts. And I was like, oh, then it took me until actually after Andalisa's was born. And I'm thinking about all these grandma names. I'm like, oh my God, I've been manifesting into an image of a sick old grandma. And I was like, with everything, thank God I know what I know, right? And I have my core practices. And, but on the physiologic level, there was that manifestation too, until I realized, oh, I see, I'm adding this grandma title. What does that feel like? Like, What does it feel like to be a mother? What's your mother body? What's your grandmother body? And I had to take that hat off and put on a belly dancing skirt and shift my grandma attitude and really kind of reframe that. Like, what does Gigi look like? Right. What does it look like to be that? Oh gosh, that great grandmother watching her maybe get married or fall in love, graduate university, right? Like what will that energy feel like and how do how alert and awake do I want to be, especially when we're jetting around the world traveling at that age. So I, I want to, I have to really, that was a really conscious discipline and reframing that I needed to make to myself. Like, okay, I'm following down this path. Well, what were those underlying beliefs that had to be shed? And um, that was, that was pretty, that was pretty eye-opening. Another perspective. 
I think that that's so profound as well, because I think that we do take stories and what should be normal, which is often just what occurs commonly. And with that, I think is a perfect bridge into what uh, menopause can be like commonly, and maybe how we might think about optimization um, of menopause. So let's, let's under, let's start by maybe pre-framing and even going a little bit, uh, uh, you know, before we jump into menopause, let's talk a little bit about perimenopause. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are some of the, you know, I, I'm in perimenopause right now. I'm du- like, I'm in the double fours right now. I'm 44. Um, and so um, I don't, I don't, I haven't experienced, like, of course I've studied it. I've helped, you know, lots of clients with it. And I think that I've done a, a relatively good job at um, uh, preventing some of the common symptoms that we might see occur or that we might have our patients uh, complain about in menopause. And I think that we can talk about this from a hormonal perspective, but you said something really interesting that I thought we might start uh, with the mental and cognitive uh, first with the schema that we have, like the belief system that we have around what perimenopause and or menopause might be. Right. And then we can maybe talk about some of the brain changes, cognitive changes, and then the, how those might then begin to influence us skipping the workout or snacking on, you know, whatever, cheesecake or having extra wine or whatever to placate our emotions in the evening. So let's talk a little bit. Let's start with, uh, you know, sort of the brain and the mind, if you will. Yeah. And you had to mention wine. I'm in the middle of Lent and I gave up wine. So I'm whining, no wine, but you know, it does, it does also make a difference. Certainly, especially as we get older, you said something really, I want to emphasize, you said helping and this makes you different than many other doctors, helping, helping your clients prevent the symptoms, right. Versus I'm treating the symptoms. This is completely the by design, the way it has to be done. Because in, when women are coming through perimenopause to their primary care doctor or gynecologist, sometimes their symptoms are just being treated or suppressed and not prevented or addressing the underlying causes. And so often they get a birth control pill and they get um, an SSRI and then they get a endometrial ablation or a hysterectomy. And then I will say, then after that, you've given the antidepressant, you've given the birth control. Now you've removed the uterus and ovaries since they're over age 35, what do they need them for anyway? And before you know it, they're getting a referral to psychiatry and a divorce attorney. I mean, it's so true. It's very sad. And I was sitting at a beautiful table of, um, uh, amazing professional women on uh, last last week for lunch at an exclusive club here in Dallas. And they, you know, had all hormone questions, right? They're like, oh my gosh. So they were asking all hormone questions. And three of the uh, 12 women at the table were on birth control pills and they were after, older than 50. Everyone pretty much at the table was o- older than 50. I've always found that crazy. It How is a 50 year old on birth control pill? It's and and not for birth control, right? And right. not for birth control, right? right. For right. hormone, that's the that's the treatment of the symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. That's the suppression of the symptoms. We'll come in after, and then, you know, we've got our next best option. Versus, well, let's empower your body so you're not symptomatic through this transition, and let's not give you an additional endocrine disruptors such as the synthetic progestins that are in every single one of those birth control pills. Sadly. And let's, you know, prevent you from experiencing these symptoms. And until I went through it, I mean, I wouldn't have known the severity. And again, that's my specialty. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and the prime years of my life studying hormones. 
hormone cascade, gynecology, reproductive endocrinology, and the list goes on. But to find out that above those hormones, those most important hormones you mentioned at the beginning, you know, our cortisol, our insulin, and the most important hormone of our entire body and our lives, oxytocin. And so, so in understanding this, getting to those treatments, well, what is happening with our, you know, what's happening with our physiology in our mid third, in, in our twenties to late twenties, we're our DHEA, that's a precursor to estrogen testosterone is also starting to decline. And then progesterone, our mother hormone in our mid thirties is really declining and it declines quite rapidly and add in 35, so 35 to 55 sharp decrease loss of maybe like 55%, 65% of total uh, production of progesterone during those years and, um, and add in some healthy stress further plummeting, emptying that progesterone bucket. And you really have a decline in the, the estrogen and testosterone. But, and understanding that that's happening and that enters this period, you know, we've called it estrogen dominance, but really neuroendocrine vulnerability. I mean, I don't, I've got to find a better name, but it's affecting our, our brain and our hormones, our brain and our body, our nervous system and our reproductive hormones. And so this transition happening is, is creating a shift in how we think, how we sleep, how we move when it's not optimized, when it's not optimized. So by design, and this is where I really discovered when I was in like 48 years old, around 48, this time period, 46 to 48, I was just plummeting and I had the post-traumatic stress still under the surface. And that was an issue too. And I had brain fog, mood swings, irritability. And of course, cycle was basically non-existent at that point. And I gained 20 pounds without doing anything different. And that's where, when my patients would say that to me, Stephanie, I'd be like, uh, sure, you're not doing anything different. How is that possible? Oh my gosh, you guys, it's, it's possible. And, and my hormones, my bioidentical hormones were dialed in on the labs. My thyroid was good. My hormones were good. I mean, optimal. And so, okay, so what else is going on here? And that dug me into you know, really um, the ketogenic diet and the ketogenic lifestyle. Cause I was like well over 240 pounds at one point, gaining 20 pounds, what felt like overnight without doing anything different. When would the scale stop? So I strictly reduced my carbs and very quickly it didn't feel good. And I'm very familiar with ketogenic diets and low carb diets. Cause I treat patients with, um, Candida, you know, with chronic yeast infections and seizure disorders, neurologic conditions with keto, and I have a daughter with seizures. So very familiar with the ketogenic lifestyle. But then I started feeling like I hit a wall and I call it, you know, keto crazy, keto cranky, keto crazy. It just didn't feel good. And then I recalled some, many of my patients in the perimenopause, menopause time period, when I put them on this type of regimen, they said, you know, Dr. Ann, I just don't feel good. And, and that's what dug me, that's where I really dug into understanding, okay, what's happening physiologically, what's going on here and checking urine pH. I was as acidic as the urine pH paper read. And for me, that was the aha moment that in order to do a keto healthfully as women, we needed to add in the greens and the alkalinizers. That's great. And, you know, I think that, um, women who are in that drop zone, let's say like those, you know, that age 46 to 48, um, 
we really do underestimate the impact of that chronic, you know, in your case, very acute and then long lasting, uh, chronic low grade stress and inflammation. And you described the pathway before where there's sort of this diversion, uh, to be able to make cortisol in order to be in that survival mode at the expense of, uh, some of our sex hormones like estrogen and testosterone. And just to round out this conversation, um, you know, I, I have a lot of patients that will say, you know, I just don't feel like confident anymore. You know, I don't feel like I, my, my person, I feel like I'm shrinking. That's a lot. I, I sort of get that. Um, like, I don't feel like I'm, you know, putting my best foot forward. I don't feel proud. And when we sort of look at this from a physiological perspective, of course, you know, estrogen, uh, at least, I mean, one of the many effects that it has, and I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but one of the many effects that estrogen has certainly in the brain in particular is it bathes our verbal uh, centers. So we are much more articulate. We have, you know, much more colorful vocabulary that we might be able to draw on. And testosterone, of course, does help with our confidence. You know, it's famous for libido, of course. And yes, it's, you know, certainly, you know, intensity of orgasm, sensitivity of the clitoris, uh, like all of that is all true. But in terms of like those brain-based changes, we don't feel as confident. We don't feel like being, going out to a party, let's say, or going out to a, it doesn't have to be a party, like a dinner, like you were, you know, or lunching with the ladies, uh, like you were last week. You don't feel like being social. And then you sort of get into this really vicious loop where maybe you're not talking as much as you should be. You're not socializing as much as you should be. And you become more insular and insular and inward and inward. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some of your research in terms of menopause around the world. But one of the things that I think is sorely missing, uh, at least in North American society, you know, post pandemic, I think we can say post, right? We're beyond the pandemic at this point. Hopefully we'll see (laughs) post pandemic is this isolation, right? That we've all experienced, right? This, this, uh, lack of connection and lack of communication, um, which sort of brings me round to oxytocin, which is something that you're one of the few practitioners that I see talking about consistently. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of oxytocin? You called it sort of the mother, or maybe you, didn't, you said the master hormone. Uh, you called it the master hormone. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the queen, the reigning hormone, right? Absolutely. And and it's so important because we're going through this perimenopause time period. And just to emphasize the reason that keto works so well is because we need and the benefit of estrogen, it promotes gluconeogenesis in the brain. Our brain will soak up the use of glucose. I mean, it is the primary consumer. So in perimenopause, we're getting the brain fog, all these neurologic symptoms, in addition to the hormonal symptoms, the neurologic symptoms, it's because our brain is starving for fuel, essentially. When we shift to from glucose as a primary source to ketones as the primary source, that's not hormone dependent. So that shift brings the clarity brings the, you know, that's like jet fuel to the brain where glucose is gasoline. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money, 
no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. So it's a huge, a huge difference. And that's where, why I say it's not just a good idea and perimenopause and menopause, it's mandatory. It's mandatory. So from forties on shifting with metabolic flexibility, right? With some variety. I love my feasting. That's part of celebrating in community too. So um, with, with metabolic flexibility, but getting into ketosis, a good percentage of the time, over half, if not 80% of the time. And so that shift is essential to breeze through menopause into what the Japanese call the second spring of our lives. And that makes a difference. And in order to do that, we have to um, become insulin sensitive. So the, you know, your book, my books, rec- that's what we're driving people towards insulin sensitivity. And you and I with a similar heritage, uh, you know, certainly me, I feel like I can live for six months in the Sahara with no food and water and I will be fine. Same. <laughs> I will be fine. My body is so metabolically conservative. <laughs> that is by design, but survival genes, right? Survival genes. And that's good. That's another way to look at those. Otherwise, you know, tagged as fat genes, cancer genes, diabetes genes, heart gene, heart disease genes. You've got that in your family. Congratulations. You are a warrior. You're a warrior, babe, right? Like, oh my gosh, you're designed to be an Amazonian, you know, a, a Saharan princess, whatever it may be, but shift your, the way we think about the things that our family history. Why did that? Why are we so empowered by these <laughs> You know, like the Native Americans, for instance, a perfect example of these diabetes genes. No, you've got warrior genes. You know, I tell my young um, teenage girls, Pocahontas genes or Mulan genes or whatever their heritage, you know, an ideal that they can focus on or relate to. That's that's the difference. In menopause, we've got these amazing, this amazing transition of our, you know, epigenetics to empower us in the right environment. So we can, guess what, create our environment to overpower some of the, you know, technically worst genes. We've called them the worst genes, but there are survival genes. We are empowered by those. So there's my argument for that, Stephanie, that's like all reframing, right? All reframing makes a difference. I like that. And I I wanted to maybe double click on something that you just said, which of course, um, you know, you and I being sort of advocates for the ketogenic diet for women. um, One of the things that I've also heard, uh, and I did this myself. So when I first got into keto, I was like, I'm going to do it like all the boys are doing it. Like, uh, you know, Dom D'Agostino is going to fast for seven days. I'm going to fast for seven days. You know, I see Peter Atia doing something. I'm like, I'm going to do what Peter's doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, of course I've had Dom on the podcast and uh, we've had this discussion around the ketogenic diet and how we should be nuancing it for women. Of course, at the time I was being bullheaded and stubborn, uh, make the case for my, for my heritage. You, you probably <laughs> might be able to do that, but uh, let's talk a little bit about, and you said metabolic flexibility. I am a really big advocate for, and I know you are too, around this idea of a therapeutic intervention of ketosis, because then you get those ladies that they say when they're 50, they're like, I've been doing it for six months and 
I don't feel good. Right. So is there, and I'll ask this, is there a place for, um, you know, for lack of a better word, keto cycling, you know, protein and carbohydrate cycling. I like to, I'd like to talk about it in the context of through the menstrual cycle. Um, but let's expand that a little bit and let's talk about how that might apply to perimenopause and then menopause as well. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, with my book menu pause, there are different pauses because as women have been doing now for years, my first book, um, the hormone fix came out in 2019, but I've been doing my online magic menopause program since 2015. And as I've worked with women and we get stuck doing the same thing all the time, right. And it no longer serves us. It no longer serves us. So we have to change it up. And so these pauses came from that. So like, following a keto green kind of basis, um, definitely working with intermittent fasting and no more snacking. All my menus are two or three meals a day, depending, but each six day pause, pauses something different. So like keto green extreme is more autoimmune paleo, avoiding nightshades and peppers. And the second one is all plants, avoiding meats. And really as we know, plant diversity increases microbial diversity in our gut and is really strong resilience. Plus a lot of people doing keto are very constipated. We cannot have constipation, have good skin and pretty hair and, you know, and be nice. We can't have constipation. So <laughs> and be nice. You can't be constipated and be nice. You cannot. <laughs> so uh, remember that. And, um, and then we go to a carnivore plan. And so avoiding all vegetables, which have sometimes been hard to digest. And we're giving your system a chance to rest in each of these different pauses. And then there's a cleanse plan. And then there's a carb up plan. Sometimes my ladies have been doing, following my program and, and not doing any feast days. And I have no problem with that, Stephanie, no problem with missing, a, you know, like feast days are just part of my life. But, you know, I work with women and I'm, we have to add carbs back, some sweet potatoes, some root vegetables. We have to up their carb intake. And some women will actually lose weight during that, but they'll feel better, sleep better. And that's an important, that's an important thing to, to do too. And I don't want anyone to be, um, have uh, restriction fatigue or diet fatigued or be stuck doing the same thing every day because you know, variety is the spice of life. I love that quote. And it's so true. Variety is the spice of life. But just like you can't do the same workout routine every day, you can't feed your body the same thing every day. It will develop food sensitivities, resistance. And we want to keep changing things up to support gut microbial diversity. So that's a really key part. And that supports estrogen metabolism and um, hormone and neurotransmitter serotonin production. So we need that healthy, diverse gut. And especially for women, men have 10 times as much testosterone. They can get away with a lot more restriction. They can get away with a lot less al you know, alkalinity focus because they have 10 times as much testosterone, which converts to estrogen, which is why they don't get that rapid brain fog memory loss in their andropausal years that we do in our menopausal years. And so they've got that covered. So for us, testosterone is the anabolic steroid, the anabolic hormone that's going to keep their bones, muscle, skin good. For us on ketogenic for a long time, if we're acidic and not paying attention to urine pH, which is the most important biohack or biomarker that I can, that I can follow, one of the most important one, as important as your blood pressure, your heart rate, I think even more important because an alkaline urine pH, especially combined with a ketogenic diet, 
it is game changing. It is energized enlightenment. You feel clear, you feel grounded, you have peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's that physiologic shift. And that's really important because we know that a urine pH, a higher urine pH is associated with lower uric acid, clearing more uric acid. That's good. Thanks, Dr. David Perlmutter. And, um, and associated with decreased cancer, decreased cardiovascular disease, and decreased um, diabetes. Let's, um, let's pause there. <laughs> Ah, love See it. What I did there. Pause there on on your and pH. You've 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 talked about this a few times now. So uh, you mentioned that if someone is in uh, ketosis for a long period of time, you might see an acidic uh, pH and urine when, pH. Yeah, urine pH. Thank you. Um, and then maybe on a protocol like the Keto Green program or some of the um, the uh, streams or tracks, if you will, in Menu Pause, which we're going to get into, we might move that urine pH from being acidic to alkaline. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the optimal, uh, what you typically might see in terms of uh, urine pH when it's acidic? And then what are the lab ranges or the the ranges that we might look for in um, for an alkaline uh, urine pH level? Yeah. So when you're feeling like typically when the urine pH is neutral, neutral is seven, Anything higher than seven, seven, seven point five, eight, I'm thrilled with. That's amazing. And even seven to get a urine pH of seven on a regular basis, just shifting to neutral to more alkaline. It's perfect. Often I see people with at least a urine pH of five, but often that's the lowest end of the urine, the pH paper. So I don't know exactly how acidic our urine's getting. But we have to also recognize that, you know. That's part of it. The greens and the alkalinizers are part of it, but as part of my, what I call the keto green way, getting into ketosis in a healthy way with alkalinizing foods, as well as practices, right? We just don't eat like for keto. We just don't eat fats and protein. We fast, we do intermittent fasting. And that's part of it for the greens, the alkalinizer. It's not just about adding alkaline greens, because one of the most acidifiers to our body is cortisol. So we can be eating completely alkaline plant-based even and have an acidic urine pH because we're stressed and cortisol increases hydrogen ion secretion across the renal tubules of the kidney, acidifying the urine. Fascinating because oxytocin, favorite crowding hormone. Oxytocin is the opposite. It's the most alkalinizing hormone. So in fact, you can be eating, have a night out eating pretty crappy, but you've been partying with your friends, laughing, you know, had great sex and you wake up and your urine pH is completely alkaline. That's the power of oxytocin. So that I think is why we see these longevity cultures, these blue zones, why that community and that those, um, lifestyle experiences are so critical to longevity because oxytocin is the most longevity giving hormone. It's our anti-aging hormone for sure. So the pH is one of those biomarkers and it can be measured. It can change during the day. We want it to become acidic after our workout because, you know, we're creating that good stress for our body. We expect it to be acidic after a workout. And, um, but when we wake up and when we go to sleep, it should be alkaline. It should be alkaline. And that difference in the 
now thousands and thousands of women who have been doing my program and checking that no one likes to check their urine pH at the beginning or ketones or pee on a stick is what I make you do because it's it's really cheap. Certainly we can do blood ketones and um, breath ketones. Those are all good. But on a regular basis, we're checking urine pH. You can check your urine ketones too. And so, but once you start to see how your diet and your lifestyle are interacting with your physiology, that is empowering. And that's why I want to bring the power back to women. Look, look at your vital signs. Look at, you know, I hate to say it, look at the scale, look at your waist measurement, look at your urine pH, and, and let's look at your heart rate variability. I mean, these are key vital signs that we can identify to optimize our life and our menstrual cycle, right? And our signs of ovulation, the longer we have the conservation of our ovarian integrity, that's a anti, I mean, that's anti-aging. That's the ultimate in longevity medicine, preserving, you know, optimizing ovarian function for the longer we have it. So suppressing it when we're having this transition time um, needs to be studied as an effect on longevity. I like that you mentioned uh, weight, uh, like getting on the scale. Yeah, um, no, I hate to do it, but I, I know it, it can't, it can I'm not even unpacking of, it yet. It's like a psychological <laughs> sort of, it can be like psychological warfare if it that's the only metric, you know, that you're using. So I like that you said, you know, get on the scale, but also take your waist to hip measurement. Also look at your urine pH in this case. You might also look at ketone bodies, as you were mentioning, which, you know, one of the things I love the ketogenic diet so much, it's the only diet that I'm aware of that has a biomarker that we can actually track and measure. And then you might also do something like a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. Um, you know, so you're looking at all of these things and you're able to derive context because if you just have the scale and let's say you've been working out and you're putting on muscle, the scale is not going to reflect true body composition and or metabolic health. So there needs to be the, I do think that the scale is important, but we need to be adding in measurements, let's say, or pictures. That's another thing I'll often like take pictures of yourself. Like you can see a difference, you know, you can, sometimes you like, you feel maybe bloated, but you look exactly the same or better. So I think that that's, um, an important, um, point that you brought up. And I just wanted to kind of come back and underline that. Yeah. Um, I love that too. And I definitely have a love hate relationship with the scale, but it's, it's just one of those biomarkers. You look at it as a number to help guide you. How, you know, how did I do last week, yesterday, what, what's shifting when you're getting stuck and the times that I have moved, I'm in the middle of my move now here in Dallas, but you know, the time I lose the scale, I mean, it's, it is an important feedback mechanism, um, to us, especially if you're living in sweats and yes, that are else. very forgiving. Yes. <laughs> that are very forgiven, right? Yeah. You're not dressing up and, ah. Let's, um, let's talk about alkalizing foods. So obviously, um, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, discussion. I've had people on the podcast, uh, who've talked about the deleterious effects that green leafy vegetables can have. And I always like to, um, I always like to have a lot of different people on the show um, because I like people who challenge my thinking or make me sort of do research to uh, like to understand, like, is my viewpoint is there a flaw? Like, do, is there a flaw right. in my theory? Um, can you speak a little bit about, uh, green leafy vegetables? And do you think that, um, you know, I have people saying to me, oh my gosh, what about the oxalates? Uh, am I going to have kidney stones? And 
Um, I have, I have a certain viewpoint on that. I would love to sort of give you the floor and love for you to explain sort of your viewpoint on alkalizing foods in the context of green, green vegetables. Yes, absolutely. You know, and this is something I'm really passionate about. Now there are times for pauses, right? Even in menu pause, we have a plant pause, right? We're, we're just in a carnivorous plan and it's a pause. We want to keep that diversity. I think doing anything for too long, you know, the same thing. I mean, it's just not um, sustainable and nor is there historic precedence for it. And I want to look at balancing a woman's physiology, not a man's. That's my, that's my emphasis. Again, men, 10 times as much testosterone, anabolic steroid than women. And um, so I've looked at all of these things, including the long-term effects. But what we know is that all of the long, longest living societies have alkalinizers. And someone can argue, well, the Inuits are eating fats and, you know, just fats and protein all the time. I'm like, no, they're not. And this is, was my big aha moment when I first started my keto alkaline kind of research. And they're not, they drink bone broth. They drink fish bone broth. Those are minerals. Those are alkalinizers. Those are really key. And all the other longevity societies have a strong plant-based food source and diversity is key for gut microbial diversity. The uh, populations with more gut microbial diversity have lower chronic diseases, lower chronic diseases such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease, diseases of inflammation. So we have to balance it out. If we think about what is causing the disruption to the GI tract is the dark green leafies or is it the, you know, the planting process, pesticides, herbicides, glyphosates, et cetera, that have contaminated much of our, of our plants and our soil and mineral depletion of the soil. There's a combination there that you have to kind of look at to extract out of the equation, but it goes to say that we need a diet with fiber. We need to have regular bowel movements. We need to, and, and guaranteed in a carnivore plan, you can, absolutely. It's just not the majority of clients starting out. So, so in, all, in all benefits, how do we feel long-term? We have to balance the food we eat with the thoughts that we think, with the lifestyle that we have, and optimize to the best of our ability. And through working now with thousands and thousands of clients, you know, the switching things up is honestly the best, the best way to do it. Plants, I feel, are absolutely essential. But, you know, I've just made last night, I made kefta, which is, and it's actually one of the recipes in my book, Menu Pause, kefta kebabs. I made it as a, like a, a, a plate. And so it has parsley and onions and herbs and spices. I mean, the herbs and spices are alkalinizing. So you're, you know, you're, you're getting that from your plants too. So that's critically important with a big bowl of tabbouleh and parsley is a medicinal food. It's a natural diuretic. It has, I mean, so, you know, it's rich in fiber. It's highly alkalinizing with lemon juice, olive oil, garlic, you know, um, onions, tomatoes, all those good things. And so that's like a very good example of a keto green meal. There's a balance there for the food that we eat. So the combination versus exclusion and demonizing any specific foods, it's, it's not okay. I mean, we exercise to strain our body too, right? We exercise to challenge our body as well, versus if we don't, then we're not going to have that good 
resilience, you know, and it goes to our bones, goes to our muscles, goes to everything else. The same with our gut microbial diversity. You've got to strain it a little bit too. So I think it's figuring out what's working for you now and be ready to change it up. So, you know, am I in the keto camp, paleo camp, autoimmune camp? I mean, in the, you know, vegan camp, in the, like, yeah, all of the above, right? All of the above. There's a benefit to pause and try these different lifestyles and change things up so you're not doing the same thing all the time. And I I hear it so often, especially looking at, you know, and I've looked at so many food diaries and, people that are eating healthy, but they're not eating healthy or they're eating chicken salad every day. Okay. Maybe chicken salad. I'm a little, I keep demonizing chicken salad, but it's the most common weight loss food that I see people eating. I'm like, it's not good for you if you're eating it every day, right? You just can't do it every day. And so also in the carnivore communities, because I definitely think there's a place for a pause. If you've got to heal the digestive tract, you've got to heal, you know, support your body's natural enzymatic production and supplement to support that as well. So um, I had a beautiful interview with someone who had heard about me because one of her longtime carnivore clients was gaining weight on the carnivore plan, then switched to my keto green and lost all the weight plus another 50 pounds. And so she went from her carnivore way to the keto green way for a while and just felt the difference. Like you can, you want to feel the difference. I'm a physician. I'm going to write a prescription for your high blood pressure, but are you going to feel any better? I'm going to write a prescription for your diabetes meds, but you know, how much better are you going to feel? Right. And the same, like with thyroid, when we can custom, we've got to customize that thyroid formula. But if that was the key to weight loss, everyone would be thin because they're on thyroid, but that's not the key, right? It's not the key. There's so much more to it. And that's where the, the, what we're eating, when we're eating it, right? Who we're eating it with saying grace and a blessing over the food we're eating. All of these things are, you know, are variables that can improve our receipt of these foods. So for in a carnivore uh, plan, make sure that we're doing alkalinizing lifestyle practices, make sure we're hydrating really well in between meals, right? We don't drink with our meals to dilute our digestive enzymes, no more than our four ounce glass of, or six ounce glass of wine, Stephanie. So no more than that. And, um, you know, we're creating that intermittent fast to allow our body time to rest and digest. I mean, those are crucial pieces of the puzzle that can't be, can't be left out. So I, I like to challenge my GI track. <laughs> I like to also challenge it to be deprived of certain things. Like, you know, I, I've gone, I've done the seven day water fast. I've done a three day dry fast, you know, and it's fascinating what your body can do. I like Sundays for my one meal a day Sunday, right? But the traditional and family and, you know, and, and, um, you know, it's a great, it's a great hack too. And I like some days I'm fasting some days, it's, you know, they're shorter fast. And that flexibility, I think, again, back to my variety is the spice of life. Plus there's seasons for a reason, right? There are seasons for a reason. And depending on what an individual is dealing with, we have to make those changes. We have to make those pauses or additions maybe to, to what they're doing in order to get ideal health, optimal health and results. I think what you're describing so eloquently is the area under the curve. 
right? So you can do something like a keto green uh, application or a carnivore application, which I am fascinated with because I, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to why that is, or a, a vegan uh, uh, protocol, let's say, or a carb up, you know, and, and we're going to talk about each of these programs in turn. But what if you just stay there, you know, if you think back to university, maybe or high school, and you remember that bell curve where like the, the, the professor would like sort of, you know, if the, if the, if the test was so hard and everyone bombed it, they would bell curve it all the way up to like, you know, whatever it was, the 65 to being the average or whatever the number was. But that area under the curve, you know, that kind of under the 65, sort of where everybody would amalgamate, like where sort of most of the class, let's say, would be. That's sort of the maximum benefit. When we talk about keto green, when we talk about carnivore, we talk about veganism, we talk about higher carbon. But if you just stay there forever, then you start moving, like you sort of ride the curve, let's say, and then you start becoming the outlier. Now, of course, if you're in university, like that's a good thing because you're sort of, you know, getting a better grade. But when we talk about this in the context of diet, um, you, you are beginning to have, re, uh, reduced returns, uh, the longer that you stay in it. And I see this with women all the time where they'll do, let's say a traditional ketogenic diet. It's not female centric. It's not, uh, you know, based on, it doesn't have enough greens. And then they start to see initial like weight loss. They feel great. And then they don't feel great anymore. It's like those mm -hmm. women you were talking about uh, at the top of the hour, they're like, we've been doing it for six months. We don't feel great anymore. And mm -hmm. what, what do women do? They blame themselves. They say, mm -hmm. I've got to do the key. It's like, I was so strict in the beginning and now I'm letting, I'm not doing it as well. So I got to do it even stricter. Right. Mm -hmm. So they end up getting further and further and further away from the goal. And you see this not only with the ketogenic diet, I just happen to see it the most because that's the diet that I tend to uh, prescribe the most, but you see it with veganism as well. Mm -hmm. People will move from like a standard American diet and they'll just go plant only and they'll feel amazing right, because right. they're getting away from those processed foods. And then over time, they're like, God, I've been doing this for a year and I feel like crap. Yep. So yep. I want to move exactly. away from, yeah, like the blame and the shame and yeah. to what you're talking about, which is like, let's just change things up. Let's just move into a different way of eating. And so you've been talking about these six or pardon me, these five different plans that you that you follow for six days. And we'll talk about the six in, in just a minute, but let's talk about each of them in turn. So we talked about keto green extreme plant only carnivore, which I am like fascinated with as a tool for Hashimoto's. I have seen such incredible clinical results with, with that. Um, and then the cleanse and then the carb up. So can we talk about each of those in turn, in terms of how they're different from each other and then why you chose six days as each segment? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So with the like basic core, and I, I just want to emphasize what you said too. It's just sometimes when we're doing something that bell curve, right? We're at our peak, same with supplementation, right? For example, our vitamins, we can, you know, feel great, but then we've over supplemented taking the same amount every day. It's true with methylated B vitamins is when we have MTHFR, there's that sweet spot, but then you can take the same amount each day and you've oversaturated and you're on the other side of it. So that's not good either. So those pause, again, pauses in our supplementation, changing up our routine, changing up our, you know, our, our lifestyle, our physical activities, all of these things are part, I mean, intuitively part of nature. I'm not going to give you the same thing to do every time. And although I was, I was like, everyone be keto green, you know, because this is a way to live. And this is, oh my God, I'm like, I'm like, so, you know, feeling so amazing. I mean, I couldn't have 
done what I've been doing when, when I was 48, 47, I was a basket cake. I mean, that was, I was in that spiral. Keto green brought me out of it. So I'm like the keto green flat. Right. And, uh, but I've always said, you know, 80% keto green, 10% feasting, 10% fasting. And that kind of, maybe it's 50% keto green. And, you know, there's a variety there, but as I've worked with thousands of women through my books and through my programs, it became these things that we need to pause. So for example, the Hashimoto's or the autoimmune, uh, my MS patients or the pausing the nightshades. And that's a great pause. And it's almost like step into, you know, before you do carnivores, like let's pause these nightshades. Let's take these away because they can be, you know, immunostimulant. So we want to, um, Erase that, erase that if that's part of a part of what's going on here. And that's why I took those out in Keto Green Extreme. Plus, it gives you a very great keto green diet just without the nightshades. And it's that kind of gives you the idea of what does it look like to be keto green? I'm not hungry. I feel great, have good energy, you know, and and no hot flashes, all of those things, because the way we're doing it is also part of the part of the prescription, so to speak, the six day prescription. And then I did the plants to add the microbial diversity to support regular bowel movements. And then the carnivore plan to experience that nose to tail. I mean, our ancestors, when we did carnivore, it wasn't driving through McDonald's without the bun and everything else, just getting the meat patties, right? I mean, I've heard <laughs> heard people say that's how they're eating. And um, yeah, so that's not carnivore either. So what else is in that meat patty? We got to think about what we're eating eight too when we're eating it. So so there's that. But also I've got this great liver, cardamom seared liver. I love my cardamom seared steak and uh, cardamom seared liver. Amazing recipe. And it's so good. It's really so good for you. I'm making it tomorrow actually for my daughters, especially my uh, daughter who's a new mom. So so, and then the recipes that I put in there, nose to tail, right? To really incorporate that. I mean, we take adrenal supplementation, thyroid supplementation. Those are glandulars. And we used to consume those. Used to be part of our food preparation, part of our um, menu. And so, and then from there, um, I don't have to do it in any particular order. You can do, I have a menu pause quiz. And at beginning of each chapter, ask you questions, this may be for you, if. And so the fourth plan that I put in, or fifth plan I put in is a cleanse. And so that fourth plan is the cleanse. And that cleanse is you're already in high ketosis if you are coming into it from carnivore or from a very long um, keto green lifestyle. So you're ready for that extra healing and diuresing and gallbladder liver support. And, and so I created that plan for that. And then the carb up plan to when you're been restricted for so long, adding in those carbs, especially if you're not sleeping well, if you're still struggling, or you're getting a resurgence of menopausal symptoms, um, or you, you hit that weight loss plateau too, and then we can carb up. And I've seen some clients actually lose weight during that time. It doesn't happen to me when I do it, but I'm kind of envious of, of those clients, but <laughs> it happens to them. And um, six days, Stephanie, because the gut, you know, mucosal lining regenerates every 72 hours. So in two 72 hour cycles, we get a glimpse of this feels good for me. The third to fourth day of any plan, pretty much. I mean, that's your rough spot. 
because you've just turned over, you're just creating, but day four, five, you feel the difference. So that sixth day is that minimum glimpse. And I would say seventh day, you know, of rest. One of, one of the things that I, um, that I really love about the carb up is my, um, my observation with people in keto for a long time is the, um, that they become insulin uh, insensitive because they haven't been consuming carb like little to zero carbohydrates as true on carnivore, uh, on even on like a keto green program like yours, mine, you know, I just call it the Estima diet, but very plant heavy, uh, very similar to the keto green, uh, approach. And I have found that when we start giving that patient some carbohydrates, um, they, they actually can increase their insulin sensitivity again. And that is, you know, we, we were talking at the top of our conversation, like cortisol, insulin, and oxytocin. These are really the three hormones that we really want to be thinking about primarily uh, in perimenopause and um, menopause. Would you, would you agree with that? Or do you have any? Uh, absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. My findings too. And that key. So the ketosis, we generate insulin sensitivity, but again, you gotta, you can't let the pancreas be a lazy teenager on the couch all the time. You've got to challenge it. <laughs> Those islet cells, right? You've got to challenge it. So, um, and then cortisol, certainly the way the stress and how we're supporting our body, our, our mindset. And that's an important part of this because again, the acidifying effects of long-term cortisol, especially in the perimenopause and menopause, when it's sucking away our progesterone, which is like the lid to the pressure cooker of our lives, so as that gets depleted, you're blowing the lid off this pressure cooker and women will have psychoses, have mood swings, have nervous breakdowns, have, you know, anxiety, depression, and that sense of that isolation that when cortisol is high, oxytocin is low and cortisol is high is too long. The paraventricular nucleus of the brain is like, hey, cortisol, you are frying me out. I've got to suppress you. And you're in this dangerous state that many people are have fallen into during the pandemic of low cortisol and low oxytocin. And that is that feeling of disconnect. I say the cortisol oxytocin disconnect. And, um, and that feels like disconnection. It feels like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to go into that office building anymore. I just can't stand the idea. I used to love doing that, but I don't even want to go in anymore. I used to, you know, I, I know I love my family. I just don't feel love for them anymore, right? That I don't, I don't enjoy that isolation. Like go, I don't enjoy going out or I'm not taking um, acceptance of invitations anymore, creating parties like I used to. That's that physiology of disconnect. And that's dangerous. That's the physiology of divorce. That's the physiology of burnout. That's the physiology of, of suicide. I mean, that is, there's a physiologic um, play here that affects our physiology, affects our behavior. And so then we have to know that our behavior can then affect our physiology. So it's never just what we eat, right? It's the behaviors and the mindset around it that make make something work successfully or not. That's that roadblock. Like you said, the negative self-talk to herself. I'm a failure again. I'm not doing this well enough. I'm whatever, right? I'm, I'm not enough. That's that. That's the problem there. 
And so you have to shift that mindset, you know, shift to the gratitude, shift to the wins, shift to the positive focus, shift to the things that we are doing well and that we do love about ourselves and love about our family, empower oxytocin, and we can empower our physiology so that we feel better, so that we can actually do more of those things that we love doing. Take the painting class, work in the garden, you know, have sex with our partner, you know, show up that confident, vibrant woman in our 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100, whatever, the rest of our lives. And that is a physiology to that and disciplines and practices that we incorporate to work together with our physiology. But oxytocin, that hormone of love bonding and connection is that hormone at the end of the day is we want to look around and say, I, I have loved well and I have been loved well. That's powerful. What have been some of the, in terms of giving some of our Bettys some actionable items, what have been some of the practices um, that you have found to be most useful in terms of, you know, we, we at the top of our conversation, we were talking about PTSD um, and the, the long-term effects that cortisol can have. What have been some of the most useful, um, whether it's practices, activities, behaviors, uh, rewiring of your belief system that has helped you deal with that, uh, you know, the trauma that you experienced in your life and to help you to show up present today and happy and joyful. So it is definitely the practices and disciplines. And so to, before I get out of bed, before I got off my air mattress today, because I don't have a mattress yet, I, uh, it's the practices of gratitude. Thank God I have a bed to lay on. Thank God for my family. Gosh, what a great first celebration in my new house last night. And the list of gratitude just can flood in versus I could have said, God, I'm on an air mattress and my back is creaking or whatever it may be. And so focusing on the practice of gratitude, and that is game changing and essential. That's an alkalinizing practice, decreases cortisol, increases oxytocin. So there's a physiology to our thoughts and that's no small thing. And then hydrating really well, water and I drink Mighty Maca and that is my alkalinizing superfood and has from my journey around the world, I created that. Want to support my body's detox. And there's a lot of chemicals with new paint, especially. So that's going on two to three. I'm drinking that two to three times a day right now as well. And so, um, and then when I'll break fast after our call, I'll make a keto green smoothie. And so, or I'll have a keto green breakfast from leftovers, kefta and tabbouleh. And maybe if there's not enough, throw in some eggs with that, drizzle it with olive oil and some avocado. I mean, that, I think I'll make that for the family. And that's a keto green. So there's a very low carbohydrate. Your blood sugar is not going up and down. Earlier in our conversation, you emphasized the importance of continuous glucose monitor. I love that thing. I love it. I wore it for almost a year straight as I was making recipes for my second book, Keto Green 16, and wore it through making recipes that I create and publish in my books because you don't want your blood sugar to go up and down because you're going to have cravings. Willpower is physiologic. And I think so the, to remember for our, your Bettys out there, I love that, that you are you know, starting your day in a mindset that is physiologically supportive and a blessing to be starting the day with. And so I think that's really powerful and hydrating before, you know, I always say not with your meals, between your meals, we're not diluting those digestive enzymes, but flushing toxins that your body's been working to produce and, and release all night is critically important, especially when you're starting a detox program or any type of change, you want to support your detoxification processes. So you feel really 
well quicker and um and and let you support that it looks like the baby's uh, awake i hear the, ba- I hear the baby <laughs> the grandbaby's <laughs> awake <laughs> All right. So let's, um, in, in, uh, we're, we'll wrap up because I want to, um, want to just respect your time as a new, uh, grandmummy. And, um, and of course I, um, I, I feel like I could talk to you for many, many days really about this because we share very similar, it seems clinical, uh, observation and, uh, experiences, but tell us about your, your book. Uh, we are actually coordinating the release of this, uh, podcast to be out the week that your book is available. So tell us about menu pause and what can people, um, expect, uh, when they pick up the book. So, um, the menu pause is 125 recipes. My publisher Rodale did an amazing job of creating a colored book here. So it's a colored cookbook with, uh, segments on menu pause around the world and be- those beautiful five plans that are each six days long in it easy to look at, easy to read and fun. And I, I share part of my journey with you, why certain foods and recipes are part of part of the plan. And I share the menopause around the world, what other cultures have done to support menopause. So you guys will love it. And I have to say just the name brings a smile to your face. So please share it with someone you want to make smile too. Absolutely. And we will make sure that we have the links uh, and we have the quiz that we'll make sure that it's in the, in the show notes so people know where they can start and the links to where the books are. Anna, this has just been such a lovely uh, time to spend with you. Um, I have been wanting to uh, spend more time with you, truthfully, uh, uh, in person uh, when I'm, uh, hopefully when some of these, you know, mandates and things like that are lifted, but uh, very much enjoyed our, our time today. And I do hope to, to, be able to chat with you in person at some point very soon in the future. I look forward to it, Stephanie, and I invite you to my house and we're going to have a good time cooking in our kitchen together. So, um, you know, I look forward to seeing you and I know I could spend hours talking with you. So I look forward to it. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic or any other primary healthcare providers advice, treatment or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 